It is nearly 12 o'clock and time for the KMXT Midday Report. Thank you for listening to KMXT. On 100.1 FM, it is your public radio station broadcasting from Signal Hill in beautiful downtown Kodiak, Alaska, where we have overcast skies, 31 degrees. Out at the airport, they are showing 82% humidity, west winds to 3 miles per hour and 10 miles of visibility. The Weather Service is calling for cloudy skies today with a high near 35 and calm winds. Just a chance of snow after 3 a.m. tonight. Cloudy skies tonight with a low of around 29. Coming up on the Midday Report, Kodiak's Tanner Fleet is out fishing finally. Kodiak's Lutic Museum is now the sole owner of a historic kayak. And the Kenai Peninsula Borough School District's Board of Education has upheld the firing of a Soldatna physical education teacher. Those stories and more after national headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. House has passed a resolution to remove Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from her seat on the Foreign Relations Committee. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports a push to oust the Minnesota Democrat comes in the aftermath of past statements she has made about Israel that have been criticized by both parties as anti-Semitic. Speaking ahead of the vote, Congressman Ilhan Omar said she wasn't surprised by efforts to target her and pledged not to back down. My leadership and voice will not be diminished. If I am not on this committee for one term, my voice will get louder and stronger and my leadership will be celebrated around the world as it has been. Democrats have criticized the push to remove Omar from the panel, arguing that it amounts to political revenge. The decision to oust her comes a week after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy denied seats on the House Intelligence Committee to Democrats Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff the former chairman of the panel. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A day after Tyree Nichols' funeral, the Congressional Black Caucus is expected to meet President Biden this hour to push for a stronger campaign to end acts of police brutality, such as the beating that cost Nichols his life last month. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre outlined some of the proposed reforms in today's briefing with reporters. Reforms like banning chokeholds, significantly restricting no-knock warrants, and requiring the use of body cams at the federal level. And immediate changes like prohibiting the transfer of military-grade firearms, grenade launchers, and other military equipment to law enforcement agencies. At a separate event, President Biden and former President Bill Clinton marked the 30th anniversary of the Family and Medical Leave Act Clinton signed when he was in office. A Guantanamo detainee who sued the Biden administration for unlawful imprisonment has been released. The 42-year-old Pakistani man is now in the small Central American country of Belize. 
is NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer. The man is Majid Khan, and he was an unusual Guantanamo prisoner because he grew up in Maryland, pleaded guilty more than a decade ago to being an al-Qaeda courier, and completed his sentence last year, but was still being held. Because he had cooperated with U.S. authorities, he could not be safely sent to Pakistan. Government officials have not explained why Belize agreed to take him. Khan had been at Guantanamo since 2006, and before that was tortured at a secret CIA prison. That prompted a military jury to ask that he receive leniency. Khan's release leaves 34 prisoners at Guantanamo. 20 of them have been approved for release, but the U.S. has not found countries to take them. Sasha Pfeiffer, NPR News. The Nasdaq has surged 3.2 percent after shares in Meta Platform soared more than 23 percent. You're listening to NPR News. NPR News is brought to you in part by Providence Kodiak Island Counseling Center. For an appointment or more information, 481-2400. For KMXT, I'm Terry Haynes. Kodiak's tanner crab season is underway after a two-week delay due to price negotiations between fishermen and the island's processors. Crabbers set their gear Monday, and the first boats were spotted docking at local canneries Tuesday evening. According to Alaska's Department of Fish and Game, 99 vessels are currently pulling pots on Kodiak's east side, where just over a million pounds of tanners have already been harvested. That's only about a quarter of that area's total harvest level. Another 34 vessels are currently crabbing in the fishery's southeast and southwest areas, where just about 430,000 pounds of tanners have been harvested so far. A total of 5.8 million pounds of tanner crabs are up for grabs in the Kodiak fishery this year, five times more than last year's harvest level. Meanwhile, fishing in Chignik and the South Peninsula started more than a week ago after crabbers in those areas agreed to a price per pound for tanners with processors out the Aleutian chain. Thirteen vessels are currently still fishing in Chignik's tanner crab fishery and have harvested just about half of that area's quota. The South Peninsula's fishery closed on Friday after that area's total quota for this year was harvested. Kodiak's Alutic Museum is now the sole owner of a rare kayak that dates back to the 19th century. The kayak had been on loan from Harvard University's Peabody Museum. KMXT's Kirsten Dobroth has more on the artifact's significance. The kayak's exterior is made from seal or sea lion skin that was stitched together by hand and pulled tight over a wooden frame. Tufts of human hair were also sewn into the seams. Amanda Lancaster is the curator of collections at the Aleutic Museum and Archaeological Repository. In the Aleutic worldview, hair holds a person's essence. And so by using hair in this piece, it's imbuing the piece with just an added bit of power. The kayak's split, curved bow is also specific to 19th century Aleutic craftsmanship. And Lancaster says it's incredibly rare to find one in as good condition. It is such a unique piece. They're just really to my knowledge, aren't any kayaks that exist from that time period in this this good of shape. Visitors at Kodiak's Alutic Museum have undoubtedly seen the kayak before. It spans about 15 feet on the back wall of the main exhibition space, where it's been on display since 2016. But it was on loan from Harvard University's Peabody Museum. That loan was set to end after 10 years, but the Alutic Museum asked for sole ownership of the artifact late last year. 
Lancaster says staff at Harvard were supportive of the kayak staying in Kodiak permanently. I think there's sort of a new wave of museum professionals that recognize, you know, that culturally sensitive artifacts like this, that they might be best cared for in their in their home community. There was no legal requirement for Harvard to transfer ownership of the kayak to the museum. That's because it falls outside of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which mandates that federally funded institutions return certain cultural items, including human remains, to their tribes. Lancaster says there's a sense of relief in the community knowing that the kayak is here for good. We don't have to you know, worry about sending it back and, and just being able to know that it's here long term is really exciting. The museum plans to make the kayak the focal point of a redesigned gallery space in the future. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. And here's the latest Ulu count at the Arctic Winter Games in Alberta. As of Wednesday at 10 p.m., Team Alaska has now collected 73 of those Ulu-shaped medals, 23 gold, 24 silver, and 26 bronze. In just one day, Alaska jumped from fourth place to second place in the total number of Ulus and is now nipping at the heels of the Yukon Territories, which is in the lead with 80 Ulus. Alaska is only seven medals behind. Alberta North is in third place with 60 medals. A number of Alaskans have racked up more than one medal. The Bureau of Land Management is inclined to allow ConocoPhillips to develop Willow, the company's proposal for oil drilling on federal land in the Arctic near the village of Nuiqsut. The agency suggests trimming the proposal to 219 wells, some 32 fewer than the company asked for, the recommendations are in a planning document called the Final Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement that the BLM announced on Wednesday. The BLM's parent agency, the Department of the Interior, now has 30 days to issue a decision. Interior issued a statement on Wednesday morning suggesting it could still block Willow. The statement says Interior has, quote, substantial concerns, close quote, even with the limits BLM proposes. The concerns include greenhouse gas emissions and impacts to wildlife and native subsistence. Alaska's congressional delegation, the governor, and many North Slope leaders support Willow, saying it will bring needed jobs and revenue. Environmental groups are calling the project a, quote, climate bomb. The city and tribe of Nuiqsut also oppose the development. The Kenai Peninsula Borough School District Board of Education has upheld the district's decision to fire Matt Fisher, a Soldatna physical education teacher who was let go in December following a years-long insurance dispute. As, KDLG's, as KDLL's Riley Board reports, the school board voted unanimously to affirm Fisher's termination in a public hearing Tuesday afternoon. Longtime teacher Matt Fisher was injured in a car accident seven years ago and received a large insurance settlement from the other driver. Fisher says he told the school district about that settlement at the time, but the district says it never got that notice and also paid out a claim for Fisher's medical bills. The district asked to be reimbursed for that payout, but Fisher said he was unable to pay it back. After a judge decided he did, in fact, owe the money, plus interest, he agreed. But the district refused the money and asked instead for his resignation and a portion of the payment before ultimately firing him late last year. Fisher appealed. At the appeal hearing Tuesday, 
the Board of Education was given a nine-page packet with the district's grounds for firing and was not allowed to consider any other evidence or ask Fisher any questions. In that packet, signed by the district's Human Resources Director Nate Crabtree, the district lays out its reasons for terminating Fisher. It notes he breached his contract because he didn't hold the payout in a trust or immediately reimburse the district. The district also alleges Fisher used the borough's money inappropriately, including on multiple vacations and home improvements. The letter also says Fisher's comments to the district throughout the dispute were at times contradictory or misleading. The nine-member board voted quickly and without discussion, deciding unanimously to uphold Fisher's firing. A couple members of the board mentioned it was a difficult decision. One board member was absent for the vote. Fisher now has 15 days to tell the district if he wants to move to the arbitration process, which he has said he plans to do. This means a neutral third party will review both sides and make a decision that will be final and binding. In Soldotna, I'm Riley Board. A North Pole man accused of fatally shooting two people at a drug rehabilitation facility near Delta Junction is scheduled to be arraigned on murder charges next week. KUAC's Tim Ellis has this report. In a brief proceeding Tuesday at the Rabinowitz Courthouse in Fairbanks, Magistrate Judge Risa Leonard affirmed that 33-year-old Daniel P. Surkov has been indicted for the January 20th murder of two men at the Alaska Rehabilitation Center. The judge says he'll face arraignment on two counts of first-degree murder in a preliminary hearing next week. Arraignment is set for February 8th at 1.30 in courtroom 404. Superior Court Judge Thomas Temple will preside over the hearing, and Surkov may enter a plea on the two counts of first-degree murder related to the shooting deaths of the two Delta Junction area residents at the rehab facility just north of town. Alaska State Troopers identified the two victims as 44-year-old Andre Derosian and 35-year-old Dmitry Sergenko. Surkov told an investigator that he checked into the facility a day before the shooting to deal with what he said was his chronic drug problem. Troopers arrested Surkov on the afternoon of January 20th after he tried to turn himself in for possessing a weapon in violation of the conditions of his release for an earlier unrelated assault charge. Surkov initially told police that he used the gun to kill what he said was an aggressive dog at the rehab facility. He later admitted to also killing the two men after they allegedly threatened him to get him to surrender some prescription drugs and cigarettes he was carrying. He's now being held at the Fairbanks Correctional Center on a $2 million bail. If convicted, Surkov faces up to 99 years in prison for each of the charges. In Delta, I'm Tim Ellis. A Sitka chef is one of four Alaskan semifinalists for the prestigious James Beard Award. Renee Trafton opened Beak in 2017 and has made the best of her unique situation, creating award-winning cuisine on an island with some amazing benefits and many practical challenges. KCAW's Catherine Rose reports. When I meet Renee Trafton on a Monday, it's a day off at Beak, so the restaurant is empty and we have our choice to sit at one of a handful of mismatched tables. She chooses a black and white striped rectangular table in the corner of her restaurant next to a hundred-year-old wooden piano. She says table eight is where most people sit if they have a choice, next to the window where there's a slight view of the water. 
One of the times Mary Peltola came in, she sat right here. What did Mary Peltola order? Uh, she got the cod tips. Okay. Um, it was her second time coming in. The first time she got them with her daughter, and I don't usually serve them at lunch, but uh, she asked, and I had them, so. She opened Beak six years ago, just before the start of the summer season. It was such a, like, tenuous-seeming endeavor, and many people, like, try to open restaurants, and they fail, and um, I've just been working really hard, and to get this type of like national recognition is just unbelievably amazing. Trafton started cooking for friends at Oberlin College. She was a dinner cook there for two years. When she graduated, she considered culinary school, but it was expensive, so she decided to get some experience first, just to get a taste of the profession. She moved to New York and ended up working for a couple of Michelin star restaurants. And it was uh, a really formative experience. It was really exciting to learn about fine dining and all the uh, the many, many rules of it and sort of the, uh, the focus that the chefs out there have. And I think I've definitely taken that focus um, and trained it on the ingredients I have like available to me here. Trafton says in the last six years in her own place, her culinary voice has strengthened and she's learned to adapt to the challenges of operating a restaurant on an island in southeast Alaska. In New York City, you can call at 10 o'clock at night and at like 8 o'clock in the, in the morning, you have whatever produce uh, you want. And here it's a week out. So when I was designing my menu from the beginning, I would pick things that I think would survive the barge journey up here. So like, you know, potatoes, carrots, onions, uh, kale, kind of the hardier, the hardier items. While she can't get all of her produce locally, she has access to the freshest fish imaginable and her menu centers around it. Over the years, she's been able to cultivate relationships with fishermen. She can have 1,500 pounds of salmon, halibut, black cod, and even gooseneck barnacles in cold storage, and knows exactly who caught every pound and where it came from. With that, she's able to take barge potatoes and kale to new heights. I can really transform them from something that's, you know, something you just buy at the grocery store and it's, you know, not that exciting, but with, with like technique and time and a lot of effort, the transformation from like the raw food to like dinner is, for me, it's always been like a magical transformation. Um, and I think that that's what makes Beak really special is how much thoughtfulness we put into our food here. So who inspires her in the kitchen? Trafton names a few chefs, some she's worked for and some she hasn't. And Rene Redzepi comes to mind. He's the chef at Noma in Copenhagen, which is considered the world's best restaurant by many. But he does he did a lot of like hyper local things in Denmark, and that's not the most stereotypically bountiful area. Uh -huh. But the idea of sort of of thriving within your confines of like finding inspiration in like what you have, I've also felt like a lot of inspiration with that. Redzepi made headlines a few weeks ago when he announced that Noma would soon close its doors. He said fine dining is unsustainable in its current form. And in pop culture, movies like The Menu and the hit TV show The Bear reveal a darker side of the industry. Perhaps it's not a coincidence that the James Beard Foundation this year is looking for chefs that set high standards with their culinary skill, who also contribute positively to their communities and make efforts to help create a sustainable work culture. That was Trafton's goal from the beginning. Beak is gratuity-free, and it was always important to her to make sure there wasn't pay disparity between servers and kitchen staff. She says she's always tried to hone a culture of respect and positivity in her kitchen, and music helps too.
It just kind of lightens the mood because you you know you got a zillion things to do and the orders are coming in, everything's happening. But if you're if you're singing along to the radio, it kind of like it makes the team feel more united and uh, lighthearted, so you don't get bogged down. It keeps the vibe energetic and happy instead of frustrated. Yeah, being upbeat is like super important for me, um, and I think that is not uh, generally the case in kitchens.、Um, but this is my kitchen, so I want to be happy. <laughs> As for the future of Beak, Trafton is excited to be busier than ever following the announcement from the James Beard Foundation. But she says her goal isn't to turn a lot of tables; she just wants to have people over for dinner, and make them food with thought and care. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. Jobless claims continue to decline. I'm Novosafo with the Marketplace Minute. Initial claims for state unemployment benefits declined to 183,000 last week. That's the lowest number since April of last year. The total number of people collecting benefits fell slightly. It's still around one and a half million. Central banks in Britain and the eurozone today both raised interest rates by half a percentage point. The Bank of England is battling inflation at ten and a half percent. The European Central Bank is dealing with eight and a half percent inflation and expects another half point rate hike in March. General Motors has a product placement deal with Netflix. The streamer will feature GM electric vehicles in some shows and in its upcoming Super Bowl commercial. Financial terms not disclosed. I'm Novosafo with the Marketplace Minute. It's a tough time, but each of us can make a difference in the lives of Alaskans. All you have to do is give via pick, click, give by supporting Alaska's nonprofits. When you apply for your PFD, you aren't just donating; you're giving more opportunity, more hope, more chances. You're changing the lives of Alaskans with the click of a button. Don't forget to pick, click, give when you fill out your PFD application this year. This is the Island Messenger. A look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Good afternoon, and welcome to your Island Messenger for Thursday. It is the second day of February, the year 2023. The sun rose today at 9:09. It will set again at 5:37, which will give us eight hours and 28 minutes of daylight. A gain of four minutes and twenty-seven seconds compared to yesterday. A record high for this date was forty-nine degrees, set in nineteen thirty-seven and nineteen sixty-three, and a record low was minus ten, set in nineteen seventy-one. Currently thirty-one degrees under mostly cloudy skies. The Weather Service is calling for cloudy skies for the rest of the day, but the high near thirty-five. We may not make it. How did the Airport. They are showing 82% humidity. West winds to three miles per hour, and they have 10 miles of visibility. For tonight, look for a 20% chance of rain after 4 a.m. Cloudy skies overnight too, with a low around 29. Calm winds turning to the west to five after midnight, and a slight chance of snow before seven tomorrow morning, followed by a slight chance of rain after 4 p.m. Mostly cloudy tomorrow too, with a high near 36. Looking at our local tides, we have an incoming. Oh, strike that! We just had a high tide. That happened at 11:35.
here on the east side. Our next low tide will be at 6.51 p.m. and be one-tenth of a foot, followed by a high tide at 1.32 a.m. of 6.6 feet. Over on the west side, your high tide happened at 12.09. It's now going out. That was a 12.9-foot tide. Your next low tide will be at 7.13 this evening and will be zero feet, followed by a high tide at 1.45 a.m. of 11 feet in Larson Bay. Mariners, here is your forecast for Marmot Island to Sitkanet, Kodiak's east side. For today, southwest 15 seas to 4 feet, southwest 15 tonight, 2 with seas to 5 feet, and northwest 15 tomorrow with seas to 6 feet. For Saturday, they are calling for south winds to 20 knots and seas to 8 feet. And for Sunday, they are calling for south winds to 45 knots and seas to 32 feet. Over in the Shelikoff Strait, variable winds to 10 knots today and seas to 3 feet. For tonight and tomorrow, variable west winds to 15 knots, rather, seas to 3 feet. And for Friday night, variable 10, seas to 3 feet. For Saturday, they are calling for east winds to 15 and seas to 5 feet. And for Sunday in the Shelikoff, east winds to 30 knots, seas coming up to 9 feet. Here are some meetings occurring in the Kodiak Island Borough. Tonight, the Assembly will be having their regular meeting in the Borough Assembly Chambers at 6.30 p.m. On, th on Tuesday, February 7th, the Women's Bay Service Area Board will be having their regular meeting in the Women's Bay Fire Hall at 5.30 p.m. And next Wednesday, February 8th, the Planning and Zoning Commission will be having their work session in the Borough Assembly Chambers at 6.30 p.m., and a week from today, next Thursday, the Assembly will be having a work session in the Borough Assembly Chambers at 6.30 p.m. All meetings are open to the public, and meeting packets are available on the Kodiak Island Borough website. Contact the Borough Clerk's Office with any questions at 907-486-9310. And don't forget, Assembly meetings are live-streamed on the Kodiak Island Borough YouTube channel, too. You can subscribe to get live-stream notifications. The Kodiak City Council will be holding a planning work session on Saturday. The meeting will begin at 10 a.m. It will be held in the Kodiak Public Library, and it will be open to the public. The meeting will also be web-streamed, and the web-streaming link and meeting packets are available online at the City of Kodiak website. If you have any questions, contact the borough clerk, the city clerk, rather, at 907-486-8636. Can we talk about museums for a moment? For instance, whose objects deserve a place on the shelves? Whose story deserves a spot in the permanent gallery? And whose perspective is the most important? Well, the answer to that question is yours. The Kodiak History Museum is making space for your perspective, but they need to hear from you. What stories would you like to see shared in the new temporary exhibit? Tell them why your idea is museum-worthy, and they'll make it happen. Visit them online at the KodiakHistoryMuseum.org or call them on the phone at 907-486-5920. Kodiak Electrical Association has three board members up for election. The board of directors consists of nine elected voting directors and one United States Coast Guard-appointed non-voting liaison. This year, the seats currently held by directors Ron Akeragi, 
Tyler Cornelis, and Ben Milstein are up for election. All three seats are for three-year terms, and KEA members locally elect KEA directors. Candidate petition packets are available by contacting the KEA office. To be an eligible candidate, you must be a member of KEA. Completed candidate petition packets should be received by 5 p.m. Wednesday, March 15th at the KEA office, which is at 1614 Mill Bay Road. Ballot results will be announced at KEA's annual membership meeting. That's on Monday, April 24th, 2023. That meeting begins at 7 p.m. The Alaska Business Development Center will be providing in-person tax preparation again in many villages throughout rural Alaska. If you live in rural Alaska, don't send in your tax documents to ABDC yet. There's a good chance their preparers are coming out to you. To stay updated on whether the Alaska Business Development Center is preparing taxes in your community, visit their website at www.abdc.org. And free information. The University of Alaska Fairbanks Geophysical Institute is hosting free public talks about tracking space debris, fostering education using the outdoors, new techniques for understanding auroras, and the 1964 Great Alaska Earthquake, among others. The 2023 Science for Alaska Lecture Series begins Tuesday and runs every Tuesday through March 7th. Talks, talks begin at 7 p.m. They'll be held on campus at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, but you can also attend through Zoom. Contact Rod Boyce to get that Zoom link at 907-474-7185. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT three times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m., during the midday report at 1220, and in the evening at 7 o'clock. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org. <laughs> 